Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 264. This episode is with the technical specialist at Swellaway, Olivia Greenhouse. Olivia came on, we discussed her research around ice, the use of ice, whether we should ice, whether we shouldn't be icing, some opt- optimal protocols in terms of recovery for players. We also spoke about the use of technology to optimise injury management. And because Olivia is also a player, we've got a player perspective on individual routines and protocols that she sees being used within the game. Uh, future areas of research as well that need to be developed. And also we touched on ACLs within the women's game as well. So, and then she brought up some really interesting points around the use of, of men's boots in the women's game um, and a few other aspects that we touched on in relation to uh, injuries as well in the women's game. So really interested discussion with Olivia on this episode. Just before we get into the episode, just want to give a heads up to our next networking event on Wednesday the 8th of November from 6 till 9pm at Football Strength, Conditioning and Rehabilitation in Battersea. We've got two presentations, one by founder of Speed by Sportland, Sam Portland, and the other by strength conditioning coach, Sam Peeps. Tickets are still available for the event. We've also got a two-ticket bundle available on the website. So if you come in with a friend, a colleague, a family member, you can purchase two tickets for a slightly cheaper price as well. So make sure to go and check those out at footballfitfed.com and click the shop tab and then networking events. Just before we get into the episode, I want to say a massive thank you to our sponsors, The Good Prep. The Good Prep is a meal prep delivery service that provides fresh, ready-to-eat, chef-cooked meals straight to your door. They offer meal plans tailored to your personal goals, current activity level and schedule. The Good Prep works closely with elite-level athletes and corporates to develop meal solutions that meet the ever-changing demands of performance and training. Their clients include Brighton Hove Albion, the PGMOL, Commonwealth Teams, Gymshark and many more. Their meals are full of all the nutrients you need to keep you in peak performance. You can achieve every goal you set. Plus, you can reclaim your time, eat better, move more, and reduce food waste too. Their meal plans are designed to guide you through your journey to a healthier you. Take the guesswork out of healthy eating and discover the power of nutrition at thegoodprep.com and make sure you use the code FFF15 for 15% off your first order. Also, Big thank you to Hydro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction training? For pro sport teams and athletes, Hydro is the only performance BFR brand to create pressure validated BFR wearables that are practical, safe and scalable, allowing you to enhance recovery and maximize athletic potential like never before. Whether in the change room post game, during away game travel, in the hotel or at home, Hydro has created a simple and effective tool that allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously and safely. Check them out at hydro.com or email teamsales at hydro.com to find out how Hydro BFR can give your squad a competitive edge. And last but not least, a massive thank you to Rezzle. Make sure to go and check them out over on social media at Rezzle, doing some brilliant work in the world of VR. And let's get into episode 264 with the technical specialist at Swellaway, Olivia Greenhouse. 
Rezzle is the world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Whatever your team, your sport, your ability, improve your game and train like a pro. Rezzle, Rezzle. Reactions, performance, accuracy, stamina, resilience. Train at home in the Rezzle Sports and Fitness VR Training Arena. Search Rezzle, R-E-Z-Z-I-L. The world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Available now on MetaQuest. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 263. I'm delighted to welcome onto the podcast today, Olivia Greenhouse. Olivia, how are we doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I've just said, I said this, I've probably said this on too many podcasts, but we just had a chat there that we said we should have recorded. <laughs> uh, we just missed out on loads of great information that the listeners would have probably benefited from. So now we have to replicate <laughs> that and go one step further on the podcast. So no pressure. No pressure at all. I try and remember <laughs> what we said. <laughs> Olivia, kick us off. As we always do on the podcast, I want to hear about you, your background, your career, what you're doing at the moment. Okay. Yeah, no problem. So um, so education-wise, my first degree was in sports, techno- te- sports technology, engineering, if you can get it out. Um, so that was a heavily male industry that was quite niche in terms of uh, we sat on a lot of the uh, engineering courses at uni, but we also were involved in the sports and biomechanics. So it was a real nice combination of the two. Um, after that, I then went working in sports services for a short period of time. So that was looking at the construction of uh, artificial pitches, which was really interesting because having so playing football myself and having played on many 3G pitches, I then began to understand a little bit more about what actually goes into it and the FIFA regulations for them. Um, so that, yeah, that was a short spell out, out of uni. And then I went to be a research assistant at the University of Central Lancashire. So that was working closely with Professor Jim Richards, um, his professor of biomechanics. And we kind of took any product in from Lancashire that interacted with the body. So it could be anything from an office chair, looking at posture to uh, blister socks, um, seeing how the grip worked within that. Um, and yeah, we had a real range and diverse uh, product range that came into that lab and we would kind of grill it in any sort of way possible. And the idea behind that was really to create an evidence base behind all, a lot of products that are now coming to market and sort of encouraging that evidence-based purchasing and evidence-based decision-making. Um, so there I really began to learn a lot about using different equipment um, and looking at different methods of analysis in the lab. Um, so it's a great foundation to then move into a knowledge transfer partnership, which was working with um, a company called Swellaway that I'm at currently um, and two universities, UCLan and Manchester Met. So we we had a massive range of, of academics within that. It was a great resource of, of a knowledge transfer partnership. I'm not sure if you're aware of them, but they're uh, uh, like an Innovate UK grant. So a company and an academic partner would bid for a pot of money to then hire an associate who then becomes sort of the middleman in between creating the evidence for uh for a product or a service um but then the academics also get um things like publications so it's it's a nice marriage between the two um where the company can really accelerate at a pace um with the support of of the university so it's a great scheme um and i was on that project for just over three years um, and then following that, 
I then moved across the company. So my project on the KCP was to develop an evidence base behind a new cooling, heating and compression device. Um, so that's marketed in the elite sport market. So it's very new in terms of the approach. You can control time, temperature and compression, um, which is quite a novel approach to, to using ice as such that's used out there. Um, so yeah, moving on from there, then I've across the companies carry on with the research and development of that product and the, the best thing about this podcast today is that you can put two caps on because yes. we're going to talk about all the professional <laughs> well i say it's both professional but the, the professional side <laughs> in terms of all your research and all the great work that you're doing which we're going to dive into in a second but also you briefly mentioned it there your playing side as well so give us a little bit of background on that yeah so um i've played football since the age of five um so it came out of the blue mum and sister not a fan of football so I'm not really sure where it came from uh but yeah die hard football since being very young um I played with um just like local boys teams for a long time um just friends from school I think I liked the rough and tumble of it if I'm honest I think I'd knock them down and then pick them back up and say sorry <laughs> um but yeah, so there I kind of I really began to learn the physicality of the game playing in the boy in the boys' side. Um and then at the age of 12 at the time, I had to leave. So I think that was the rule back then. Uh, I believe it's now been increased maybe to, to 16 or, or a bit higher. Uh but at 12 I had to leave and go and find a girls team, which I was mortified at because that's all I knew was playing with my friends. Um but I then moved to uh, a great setup locally called Academy Juniors, um, which was, was like a local girls team that's just started in the area because um, back then there wasn't many options in terms of um, to girls academies. Um, I then uh, went in between there and, and Blackburn Rovers a bit. So Blackburn was a centre of excellence. There wasn't really much around other than Blackburn in terms of that at that stage. Um, and then as I was getting older just before university I went to play women's football for FC United of Manchester um, and yeah again great experience kind of going from academy football to um, to women's women's sport again so learning sort of back to the roots of playing with the men the physical game of women's the women's game so um, yeah and then went went to university and was lucky enough to play with some brilliant people at Sheffield Hallam University. So uh, I played with the likes of Amy Turner, who's now at, at Tottenham, Jess Sigsworth, who was at Man United, now at um, Sheffield United. So we had a brilliant team and we absolutely flew through the leagues. I think we got to the top league just as I left. Um, so yeah, that was a great time at uni. Um, and then coming back from uni, I then went back to FC United um, and then went to Burnley. So I was at Burnley for five years um covid kind of blends the years a bit doesn't it but i think <laughs> yeah. it was fine um and then this season i've now joined stockport county so i've been playing between tiers three and four of the, of the women's game which is the national league um and i've really seen it develop from from where i was in, in the little boys team back in bolton to uh so yeah to stockport county now so it's been a great journey it's obviously something we were talking about before we came on the podcast like the women's game as a whole and sort of progression and yeah, I suppose the exciting times in terms of how far it's already come, but also the next few years as well, isn't it? It's a really, really key time. Oh, definitely. It's it's going in the right direction. I mean, 
even during my football career, I've seen it progress so much. And I wish I was coming into the game right now because for me, I never saw it as a career. It was always a hobby. And I was almost forcing, no matter what I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to do it in sport and football. So I was almost looking outside of actually playing of how can I still stay in, in the game to have a career. Um, hence why I think I was tearing my mum's hair out during university time and picking what to do. I was trying to find a sport related topic um, that, you know, that I could really stay in sport without, without actually playing. But looking at the girls now, the younger younger teammates, I'm almost jealous of them thinking, you know, you've got such a long way to go now because the game is really improving. Still a long way to go, but it's it's definitely on the up and that's all we can ask for. Brilliant. I'm going to give you get get you to give a player perspective in a little bit yeah, um, and dive into that because that'll be really interesting, I think, for the listeners. But we're going to start on a topic that's probably, there's a lot of different views around this in terms of the use of ice around injury management. So it'd be great to ask you the question, put the question to you. Do we ice? Yeah. Do we not ice? Where, what, <laughs> like, what, what do we know about this area? Yeah, so um, I completed my PhD during the KTP. So that was around using um, the, the novel cooling device for knee injury management. So looking through the guidelines of, of what's been previously, uh, ice and compression are still in the guidelines for acute injury management, but it's sort of an area that there's just not enough research on and um, such a massive gap in knowledge. Obviously, in, in recent times, there's been the development from rice, which started probably when we, you know, back in school, everybody knows rest, ice, compression, elevation. We've now gone to, to price and then police. And now there's a new peace and love acronym that's floated around. So that's where peace and love was the first time that ice has been removed out of uh, the acronym. Um, it's not an official guideline yet, but it's it's been posted sort of as an editorial blog. And it's got a lot of people talking of, do we ice or do we not ice? So the rationale why they've took it out, they say there's not enough evidence or high quality evidence on the efficacy of using ice to um, promote healing. So the actual effic efficacy for injury, um, they're not sure there's enough to support it yet. But what they do say is that there's plenty of evidence to support it as an analgesic effect. So just for that pain relief, without having to take uh, paracetamol or painkillers, um, it's got really strong evidence for being a short-term pain relief. So there's kind of two sides to the argument. Um, but what I like about the whole argument is that it actually gets people thinking of, well, why are we using ice? So um, I know it's been stood the test of time and you know even the ancient Greeks used ice. So it's common for people to not even think and just chuck ice on it. Um, so I really like that this has now opened the conversation of, well, when and where is the best time to use it? Because it's definitely got a place, but why are we using it? And, and what's the clinical rationale for using it during that time rather than just kind of chucking a player a bag of ice and saying, you know, crack on. Um, so I think it opens up a really good debate, um, but I know it is quite a controversial topic out there. And I, d I don't think there's a clear answer either way, but I do think there's definitely a place for it. Um, and I just think you have to be conscious of the effects that it has. So I know in, in the Peace and Love acronym, they talk about uh, disrupting um, the, the natural healing process. So it's sort of 
are we starting that um, inflammation process again? Because we, we do have to go through the healing process. And what they're saying is, is it actually pausing it, delaying it? Um, uh, yeah, is it interrupting what the body is really good at and, and fighting itself? Um, but for that pain relief sensation, I think, you know, it's it's such an easy and cheap win to actually to to reduce that pain, which is it's predominantly that that's its main aim. Um, so yeah, you could get me talking on this all day. <laughs> in, in terms of that, though, so what are they suggesting is the alternative? So removing ice out, but what is the the alternative? They've not suggested an alternative, so it has got quite a bit of um, backlash, I would say, in terms of uh, the way the acronym has been presented. So I still think there'll be tweaks to it even if that came to light in in clinical guidelines um they do suggest as well avoiding anti-inflammatories for uh 24 to 48 hours um but yeah like you say if someone's in a lot of pain they're not just going to kind of sit there and suffer to let the body fight itself so it is a difficult one uh, but yeah i a lot of the research that that i've done has been around um, so the device that, that I use in the research, which is called Promotion EV1, um, it's a targeted cooling, heating, compression device. So it's a lot smaller than uh, than some of the other products out in the market that kind of cover a massive area. Um, and what's been presented in the research is that when you do cover a massive area, for example, sort of like mid-thigh to mid-calf, you significantly affect uh, muscle strength and stability. So if a player's kind of come into the physio room, they've whacked, uh, you know, the cooling across the full area, and then they're actually going back into strengthening exercises or the rehab exercises they've been set, they're at a much higher risk of injury than if they were previously. So, um, so it's just to be conscious of, you know, when and where you are using cooling. Uh, there was a phase a, a long time ago to kind of have cooling at half time as well. Uh, but then obviously players are then going back onto the pitch in a detrimental circumstances. So the PhD was kind of to look, um, does it actually have, even though we are targeting a smaller area, does it have the same pain relief effects and does it have the same effects on function? And what we're able to find is that actually targeting the exact site of the area you got the same pain relief. So this is participants with knee injuries and participants with induced pain. <laughs> That's a long story. <laughs> um, they, they got the same pain relief, but uh, they didn't significantly affect muscle strength or uh, dynamic stability, which is obviously really important. Then they could go back into their rehab exercises and kind of get that load in a little bit earlier than having to do another thorough warm up. I've gone slightly off topic there, Ben. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. So uh, the other area in terms of ice, I know it's it's different because if we look at recovery, obviously it's an area that it's used a lot, isn't it? And especially with the yeah. use of ice baths recently, like the yeah, it seems to be the real trend at the moment for players. Um, you have to do it at four o'clock in the morning. You have to sit in your own garden by the looks of it. But <laughs> yeah, but yeah. these products, there's a hell of a lot out there now, isn't there? And the trend seems to yeah. be increasing. So where does this apply to more of the recovery side, do you think? Yeah, so recovery is an interesting one. I know there's a lot a lot of research going into that, um, which is great, and sort of looking at how it would fit over a football schedule, for example, on match days. Um, but how I see it is, um, so the, the ice baths are great, and actually 
if the player is perceiving a better recovery, even if the physiological results and, and research out there are, are conflicting or questionable, not quite strong enough yet, if the player feels like they're recovering better, then that perception is massive for them going back into training and feeling a little bit more energised. Um, so we did a scoping review on contrast therapy, and it was very much similar to that in terms of there's not a lot of evidence out there for contrast therapy. But, you know, how many players will come out and have a nice bath and then a hot bath? And it's it's such a trend, um, which is great because, you know, they're doing something to, to help recovery. Uh, but a lot of the results that I found within the research were conflicting in terms of physiological results. But the, it was undeniable that the actual perception of recovery was increased. So that there's a win there somewhere, even if we're unsure what it's actually doing yet. Um, there's there's perception benefits that are massive, um, particularly in sport and feeling, you know, able to train and feeling better the next day. Then that that's great. I know there's been a, a big push for them on mental health as well recently, which is great. Um, yeah. So, yeah, th- there's definitely benefits coming out of them, but it's just a case of the research. Now we just need to understand it a bit more of what's actually going on. Um, but with cryotherapy, it's been quite uh, sorry, contrast therapy. It's been a challenge previously to actually uh, measure a lot other than using like a water immersion. So that's one thing I'm finding with the device is that because you can control it between hot and cold and the compression, it's opened up a massive opportunity to actually to look at areas like this, because previously we've not been able to, you know, um, apply contrast therapy on the shoulder, for example, in a very controlled targeted manner. Um, so it's opened up a massive area that you can actually explore because there's such a gap in knowledge of it. Uh, but it is a massive area. So we're <laughs> chipping away. In terms of that size of the unit, because I find that really interesting in terms of you saying like really trying yeah. to isolate a part of your body, which yeah. makes sense in terms of the, the risk of injury as well. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that I think a lot of people are using ice for things like recovery or injury management yeah. or whatever. But like you said before, it's just sort of thrown on and probably not yeah. so much... Um, not not so much time or effort spent in terms of like an actual protocol. It's just we know we've got to use it in some way, yeah. shape, or form. But in terms of that unit that you're using, how big are we talking? Like, what's the sort of size? Um, so it's uh, so it's it's about seven centimeters by five centimeters. Um, so it's a bit bigger than your iPhone, for example, kind of that sort of size. Yeah. Um, so putting that in a, in a really targeted manner across the body. We can obviously see that throughout the thermal imaging results we've done, it's really controlled on what you're setting temperature-wise and what you're achieving skin surface-wise, whereas obviously a lot of products are kind of coming water-based, which is a lot more difficult to control, uh, particularly on the skin. Uh, But what we're finding as well is quite interesting in terms of because you are cooling a smaller area, your brain doesn't perceive that your skin's as cold as if you were covering a bigger area. Obviously yeah. affecting a, a lot less nerves. So um, so especially with the trend of ice baths at the moment, kind of getting that thermal shock as such when you first get in, um, it's actually a lot more comfortable when, when you're putting it on the body, which means you can actually do you know a few more sessions without feeling like you're torturing yourself. But on the flip side of that, some players like that shock feeling of something it's doing something. So you, you do get a few different personalities with it. Uh, which is why contrast therapy is often quite popular with with the players we work with because something's 
constantly changing every every three four minutes either compression's changing or, or temperature's changing so it's again it's a bit of that perception of of that it's something's happening so something must be working sort of thing um, even though when you're when we've applied the targeted cryotherapy on your body once it's below 12 degrees for example well below 13 um the skin's numb so essentially you're kind yeah. of going to switch off to it um yeah. so even though it's doing what it what it needs to be doing um you, you don't often feel it as much no it's really interesting i think that taps into the individual approaches that players take isn't it and yeah. also um their experiences of it before because like you say yeah. if they like that shock of an ice bath or whatever it is they're probably yeah. chasing that a lot of the time anyway aren't they, yeah. regardless um yeah. you mentioned before about cryotherapy as well so i think this would be a good time to bring that up because you mm -hmm. see this used obviously a lot with with clubs too so yeah. where does where's does the re what's the research say in terms of the use of cryotherapy so there's uh, there's two different sides of it. So the, obviously you've got your whole body cryotherapy where you're kind of going into the chambers at minus 135 or something ridiculous, freezing. Um, so my research has been more so on the local side. So the local cryotherapy where you're applying cold in a, in a targeted manner. Um, but yeah, from a again, from a player perspective, I've been in those chambers and they are cold. I think my eyebrows went white. So... <laughs> So you do, you definitely feel like something's going on and you feel um, energized after it. Uh, but yeah, my my research has been more so on the local applications of cryotherapy and applying that cold in a targeted manner. Um, yeah. No, that's cool. So if anyone that's using this with players, what would you say are some real key things they need to be aware of then? We've got some really interesting content coming up over the next few weeks for our community members, including an isometric strength for football presentation by Sam Peeps, transfer of training presentation by Sam Portland, also a presentation by Sam Bowerin, developing a performance framework. And we have a webinar coming very soon from Ben Rosenblatt, previously performance coach at the FA and recently been on the podcast. So make sure you keep an eye out for those. If you're not already a community member, make sure you go to footballfitfed.com, join practitioners right around the world, click the community tab, get yourself signed up to a free 30-day trial. After your 30-day trial, you become a paid member, you get access to our WhatsApp group where we have discussions every week about different topics, people put in different performance questions that are coming up within their roles and get plenty of different views and perspectives from all the different members involved in the community group. So come and join us, footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab, sign up there and become a football fitness community member. Here's part two of the podcast with Olivia Greenhouse. Um, yeah, so in terms of uh, protocols as well, it's it's quite an interesting one in terms of we've started to chip away at the evidence base uh, and obviously create evidence-based protocols for different areas. It's such a big area, though, to cover. Eventually, we want to be able to help practitioners by saying, you know, for example, if someone's got an MCL, you can sort of type in their injury characteristics and their person characteristics and it kind of spit out, this is the protocol to use sort of thing. That's obviously further down the line and hopefully we get there. Um, it's going to have a lot of work put into that, but that's that's obviously the ultimate goal is to have some software to 
to make it easy because we're very conscious that working in elite sport time is is precious and marginal gains are massive um so at the moment we've kind of we've got default programs set in the device so um the cold default program is six degrees that's the lowest it go so holding skin temperature below six um is when skin burns would start to occur so it's all within safety parameters um and what's interesting between the actual temperature from the cooling side the literature talks about an ideal therapeutic range between 10 and 15 degrees of skin surface temperature. Um, so that's to get um, all the physiological um, effects that you want from cooling. Uh, but I actually think that might evolve in the future. I think it might move between six and 12 is my feeling. Um, so six and so, but sorry, below thirteen is when you're going to be start to become numb, really, and get that analgesic effect. So, what I found from my results is between thirteen and fifteen, you don't really get the same benefit as below. Um, and then before um technology is sort of advanced, it's been quite difficult to maintain and control temperature below ten, which is why I think that kind of ten to fifteen kind of came about. Uh, but yeah, I I do think it it could move. Now technology's allowing it to, I think between six and 12 is, is going to become optimal from, from the research that I've read, um, which, which is obviously good for technology that can control it in that manner and, and control that that way. Again, sorry, I've gone off topic slightly. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. I wanted to flick onto the player side now as well. And just yeah. in terms of all this research that you, you've done and, and mm -hmm. doing, how's that informed your approach personally as a player as well yeah so obviously working full-time and then having football commitments as well and previously having phd commitments outside of work i was probably admit to being lazy with recovery i'll be honest <laughs> i mean i know what i should be doing whether i do, i'm i'm more so if there's a, if there's a I need to be more disciplined with it but if there's a big game or i feel a niggle i will really focus on uh using the device and, and cooling recovery is where i really need to get into my head a little bit more i'm i'm not too bad at stretches um and using obviously the contrast setting on our device quite lucky to, to be working where i am and have access to those uh but yeah i probably in terms of uh nutrition things like that i, I definitely need to focus more on recovery um but yeah injury management i'd I take very seriously but i think i'm quite a lazy player when it comes to recovery which i shouldn't be admitting <laughs> is that not a lesson in itself though for working with players because like you say you've got the the knowledge of this area and you obviously understand it more than a lot of people but the fact of yeah. actually getting it done is still a challenge so when definitely. we're working with players it, it that's going to be a big part of it, isn't it? Definitely. I think time comes into it. Um, you know, what being professional, I, I would obviously have more time to, to do recovery, whereas I'm sort of coming from work, going straight to training and then getting in at half 10. And the last thing I want to be doing is a lot of recovery stuff <laughs> before yeah. I'm getting up the next day. So I think time is a limitation for me personally. But absolutely absolutely that has been a big part of the developments we've done so my role at the moment kind of developing the research and development is to make it as easy as possible um so actually uh, Wayne Rooney is a long-term investor in the product and his one brief was keep it simple 
Yeah. Um, he was very focused on keep it simple because, you know, time for players. And it's really easy to kind of switch off if something's too complicated as well because um, just the nature of, of us as humans. Um, but it has been a massive learning curve in terms of that even developing new wraps and things like that, just making it quick and easy because often it's either going to be at the side of a pitch or you're going to have a busy physio is going to have a busy uh, um, treatment room to kind of get through. So yeah, quick and easy as possible. It is real. We've actually um, recently won a, another knowledge transfer partnership and that's to develop the software side. So at the moment, the device has got a really basic app, but it's kind of spits out sort of what protocol has been ran and a bit of a history log. So uh, physios can use it in medical records, for example, if they've sent a player home with it and, you know, set them um, rehab to do. But what we want to do is to have an automated dashboard where it really helps physios understand what protocols have been effective um, on, on what player and the characteristics of the player and the injury and really make it as simple as possible and kind of take that headache and um, a lot of the manual work out of analyzing data like this. Because um, that's probably what's contributing to the, such the gap in knowledge is the time to do it for a lot of these practitioners. Obviously, without naming names, you've been around a lot of teammates. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of teammates have a lot of different routines and, and views on this area as well. We just said yeah. there about the challenge with players that it needs to be simple, it needs to be quick, yeah. it needs to be easy. But what maybe what are some of the lessons that you've seen from seeing teammates in terms of their um, routines and making a change? Yeah, I think uh, footballers are inherently uh, creatures of habit. So <laughs> I think um, some sort of you know incentive is normally what would, would get them going, which is often normally an injury sadly, yeah. um, is when they actually become familiar with more so doing uh, recovery and getting that grained in. I do have one friend that's brilliant and would do everything to an absolute T um, and puts me to shame a little bit, but she had actually had a long-term injury. And I think that kind of changes mentality, whereas I'll touch wood right now, but I've, I've been fortunate enough not to. So I think it's, it is mentality a lot in players and prolonging that career as well. For me, football is is a hobby and it's it's a great hobby. Um, but being the age that I am now, I know we spoke before the podcast and I, and I was saying I wish I'd kind of come into women's football um, now because it's so exciting, whereas I'm coming toward, well, coming towards the tailor end, we will say. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think coming into the game now you can view it as a career and and that's fantastic I think that changes mentality as well um because yeah for me it's kind of squeezing in in and around the work that I currently do um and I've been fortunate enough to, to play at a decent level and really enjoyed enjoyed the professionalism in the game uh but I think yeah mentality wise it hasn't ever been a career option for me so I think there there is that shift in in thought of like your body is actually you know your career so I've I need to take it more seriously I will be <laughs> will be honest with you on here but uh but yeah the I think the players coming in now I've really got a view that of, of that that is your tool and that is what you really need to look after to to prolong your career especially in the women's game where the money isn't the same as the men's kind of set 
um, set them up for life, shall we say. Um, the longer the game, the longer the career in women's football, you know, that's massive um, to then actually get career, a, a, a post-career in sport as well, in, maybe in, in the media side, if you've been in around the game a long time. How do we go about that education, do you think, in terms of getting players to prioritise it? Because it's all well and good us having this conversation or even you yeah. having those conversations with teammates. Yeah. But how do you think we can really get it to sink in for players? I think um, I think the women women's players that I've experienced, anyway, are, are really open to kind of learning about yeah. um, about a different piece. I know at Burnley, uh, I'm quite new to Stockport, so I haven't quite yet, but presentations where people come in and kind of deliver a session are normally received really well um even little handouts are, are, are great that we've had you know for example nutrition sleep rest things like that um and, and they normally are quick and easy again <laughs> uh, but yeah it's so important but I do think it is going the right way in terms of talking about it in the media as well so obviously the ACL saga that's kind of going on at the moment that's kind of flagging things up to up to the women's game in terms of it's almost creating a bit of a fear um but that fear might be the change that we need to kind of take it seriously in terms of recovery and, and rehab for for the female athlete i think you're right with that you see it all the time don't you when players have an injury and it's a shame because yeah i'd like to think the change could be made beforehand yeah but the injury especially bigger injuries like you just mentioned there it can be very yeah. impactful on careers and also it just sort of switches mindsets, doesn't it? And it seems to yeah. change people's views on things. So, no, I think that that's really important, isn't it, for players? Definitely. And I do think the more, you know, the more we are talking about this ACL uh, injury situation we've got at the moment, I think that's really resonating with players without them having to be injured because they're seeing, you know, England captain, then star players, you know, keep picking up these injuries it is it is hitting home I, I do feel that among the uh among the sports so it that might have a positive impact on on education you know it has a lot of sad sad implications as well for, for the girls that are injured but I do think it is helping with the education piece as well of kind of raising the awareness of the importance of of looking after your body not that those injuries could be been helped obviously we need to know a lot more about that um but yeah I do think it is kind of promoting that in, in the right direction, at least. It's Again, we spoke about this before we came on, but mm -hmm. they're all the one percenters, aren't they? Because if yeah. we start lining all those up, it's actually very impactful. And Definitely. we spoke about sort of equipment and everything falling in place for the women's game in terms of allowing them to, to thrive, facilities, pitches, pitch availability, yeah. which is crazy that some teams can't even get pitches available and all the rest of it these are battles that they've got to face but we if we line it all up all these little one percenters it's a big difference isn't it definitely and I, and I know from my playing career um you can go from playing training on astroturf 3g to then going to a game on a, a nice pitch to then going to a midweek game on like a cow field so it can really vary the surfaces and I think in the men's game, it, it's a lot more consistent, particularly in, obviously in the professional elite side. They would train on grass, they would play on grass. It would all be great surfaces to be working with, whereas having to adjust from the impact of uh, 3G to then a hard grass pitch to then a soft grass pitch, 
it can vary so much and I do think it really impacts um how you feel the next day and certainly playing on heavy grass pitches is a real challenge to then go into train I, I know it's affected my Achilles previously kind of chopping and changing surfaces um where I now wear insoles in my boots so yeah it, it definitely has an impact in terms of that um that variability in terms of of standards yeah, definitely. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? In, in, I don't like to always compare, but in comparison to the men's game that I've got more, it's more predictable, isn't it? You, they're playing, yeah. especially in, in the top leagues, they're playing on good pitches, they're training on good pitches, it's staying pretty pretty standard. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if, like you say, if it is going to be up and down, you don't know what you're going into, it's a lot harder on the body, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think the women's game progressing now where obviously the elite sides will be at the, the training grounds that the men are at and, you know, training on great services. So that's going in the right way. But I think there's definitely a bridge between um, sort of the semi-professional level of of getting to that professional level. But there's a lot of variability in terms of um, what clubs have um, financially and facilities and how that then impacts actually the, the, the player's safety as well at the end of the day. Because, um, yeah, all this kind of leads into creating an environment for the injury to happen 100 i just want to finally just get your perspective on future future areas of research maybe on a couple of points on here as well in terms of yeah. i think that we've spoken around spoken around sort of cooling on that side mm-hmm. but then yeah. also on the women's game as well do you feel like there's anywhere that sort of stands out that we really need to dive into um yeah so firstly with the cooling i think i touched on it before in terms of ideal therapeutic range i do think that has got uh the ability to move lower down um so it's at the moment it's between 10 and 15 i think it'll move between 6 and 12 um given you know the right rationale um and for me personally in terms of the the cooling device i want to look at how deep it's actually going in terms of uh, tissue depth so that's sort of my next area that i really want to look at because given that it's um, an electronic device that's kind of drawing energy out of the body without boring you too much on physics, it's drawing the energy out and it's constantly doing that because it's battery powered. Whereas water-based products might, once the phase change has happened and it's it's gone from the ice to the water, it's, there'll be an equilibrium as such between the skin and, and the temperature of the wrap. So yeah, I'd be really interested to see over a slightly longer um, treatment of maybe 25 to 30 minutes, um, how deep that cooling would go, considering that the energy is kind of constantly being extracted rather than kind of reaching that equilibrium state. So, yeah, I, I, I do want to look at that. That would be interesting. In, in terms of contrast therapy as well, there's so much to look at. Um, yeah, the, the, it is a massive gap in knowledge, which is giving me a headache. I think when we... Uh, <laughs> When we first started the PhD, uh, sat down in my first supervisory meeting, and one of the first early questions was, "So, how many combinations of time, temperature, and compression can the device do?" <laughs> and then we worked it out in a quick algorithm, and it was like eighty thousand. And we all looked at each other like, "We're going to need a strong coffee." Like, where do where do we go from here? Um, so it's that's how big the gap is. Um, yeah it, it's a massive gap obviously the the goal at the end of it would be 
to be able to personalize cryotherapy protocols for individuals. So thermal uh, thermal stress is affected by a lot of factors. So gender, age, skin type, BMI, to name a few. Um, so to have something to kind of soak up the person as such and how they would respond to thermal uh, stress and then actually incorporate their injury as well and the characteristics there's a lot to go into that but if something could then kind of advise um an evidence-based protocol that they could use to then actually tailor these protocols it'd be massive because in elite sport even getting back on the pitch three days earlier you know, the financial implications for the club are massive and that player's mental health and getting back into training and the team performance, there's so many benefits to even reducing that recovery time slightly. So, yeah, so that that is obviously the, the ultimate aim on the cooling side. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the football side, um, I'm really pleased to kind of see the increase from the, the football, uh, women's football research coming up. Um, when... I did my dissertation in 2016 at university. It was on um, the impact of women's players wearing male boots. And it's really great to kind of see that topic now coming up in BBC. Um, so I used to work in a running shop. I know we spoke about this briefly before. And the, the, the customer would come in and you would do a gait analysis and kind of match that customer to the exact shoe that they needed in terms of support and um, obviously gender to the, the foot shape um so to then for me to then go online and shopping and, and go under male football boots and put that in my basket it just seemed so way off compared to even compared to the running side so I, I knew that area really needed development and for women's players to be wearing men's boots for so long now it, it does seem daft in a way because we've got all this technology so it's great to see that sort of progressing and in terms of the research, it is going in the right way. Obviously, a lot of the research out there is around the male athlete anyway. So I know more research is coming out, but we really need to kind of understand female physiology, particularly in women's football. Um, and, and we are chipping away at it. But I think that will then lead to an improvement in um, equipment and technology that we can offer because we can tailor the needs that we, that we now know. I think at the, the moment, there's a lot of unknowns, which makes it difficult to kind of progress quickly. So it's not going to be a quick win, but I do think it's heading in the right direction. And uh, any any sort of equipment that it could be tailored for the women's game is, is going to be massive. So starting with football boots, we'll start with that. <laughs> Brilliant. That's superb. Olivia, just wrap us up. Just give us contact. So in terms of for yourself to keep an eye on what you've yep. got going on, but also the stuff at Swallowway as well. Is there anywhere that you direct people? Um, yeah, so my tw- oh, remember my Twitter, I think it is Liv Greenhalsh on Twitter. Um, I'm sure you'll tag me in it. I'll send you after. Um, and then our managing director at Swellaway is called Jonathan Smith. Um, so add us both on LinkedIn as well. But we're quite active on there. So um, I'm sure you'll find us on there. Brilliant. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. So thanks a lot for your time. Oh, it's been great. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. Big thank you to Olivia for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate her coming on. I think it was great to get the perspective from both sides in terms of the research that she's done, but also from a player's perspective as well. Um, Really interesting to see the lack of research in ice and compression. So definitely something that needs more um, time spent on. 
And also, obviously, she mentioned Wayne Rooney talking about keeping it simple, personalised cryotherapy um, for players, and also just personalised routines and recovery methods and strategies for players as well. Um, but it all has to be quite simple and easily um, easily used within the, the structure of a game day or the structure of a week. So players don't have to change too much, but they can real, really reap the benefits of some of the strategies that are out there. So it just shows from a lot of the things that we've spoken about recently in these sorts of episodes that any changes that need to be made need, need to be made quite seamlessly, but effective at the same time. So they were my sort of takeaways on it. Please give this episode a share with anyone that you think would benefit from listening to it. Also, make sure to go and check out our sponsors doing some brilliant work. Rezzle doing some great work in the world of VR. The Good Prep, keeping everyone fed with high, highly nutritious foods and meals. And then also Hydro doing some brilliant work in the world of blood flow restriction training. Big thank you again for listening to the episode. And I will catch you again next week in episode 265.